Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here on the first day of August 2021. July uh, raced by for me and had a lot of interesting things happening in July, and I guess that helped the month seem to go by quite quickly. Summer is on the downward slope for sure. We are into the official fall migration season for birds. Uh, Many of the songbirds here are done nesting, haven't heard too many singing lately, and they have gathered into these loose flocks of uh, migrant or soon-to-be migrant uh, warblers and other small songbirds kind of moving through the forest together, but most of the forest is fairly quiet when I've been out lately. I had an email question a little over a week ago about why the hemlocks were looking so unhappy here in Sitka out the road towards uh, between Thimbleberry Lake and Blue Lake, and I went out and looked, and sure enough, they were looking very brown and not at all happy. I was curious about what was going on, and it turns out that there is an infestation, or an outbreak, I should say, of black-headed budworm here in the Sitka area, and it sounds like elsewhere, maybe around Angoon and uh, Tenakee Springs as well, perhaps the same same little cre- creatures. They are a the larval stage of a small moth. I've found the moth in previous years as an adult, and so I don't think it's an unusual species, but some years there are outbreaks. Some interesting information, if you just Google up black-headed budworm, uh, you can find some information on the uh, Forest Service website about that, if you're curious of that, about that and seeing that happening where you're at. Sounds like that, although they can defoliate the trees a fair amount, it would take a outbreak that lasted a couple or three years before it starts really killing the trees. But I'm certainly not an expert in that, just something I've been curious about and noticed. I appreciate hearing from a couple different folks about this, the observations and questions that came up. And if you're getting out and seeing stuff, I'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one that I recorded and originally aired back in 2019. I spoke with Kaylee Swift. She was in town to give a talk as part of the Natural History Seminar Series. She spoke on crow behavior, and she had done her Ph.D. work at the University of Washington under John Marsloff. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with her talking a little bit about an experiment that her advisor had done, which became quite well known in the popular press. So John was my advisor for both my master's and my Ph.D., and he's really well-known for crow lovers of all kinds. He's written a number of books, um, natural history books about them, and probably one of the most famous research studies that have come out of our lab um, has been his work looking at facial recognition and crow's ability to remember human faces. And so a lot of people, maybe if they don't know his name or they don't know a ton about crows, uh, a lot of people at least know that study because they used caveman masks and Dick Cheney masks to, to prove that crows learn and remember human faces. And that study uh, made the rants on the news and I think stuck in a lot of people's minds. If I remember the, the gist of it, basically, they did something that crows didn't like wearing a mask and then sent other people out in the mask to see to see what the response was. Yeah, exactly. So what they did is they trapped crows and put colored bands around their legs as a way to individually identify them and you know bird trapping obviously we take every precaution to make sure that it's a safe and not harmful but it's stressful certainly and not a terribly fun experience for the bird Uh, and so it's therefore a very memorable one and so they would trap birds in the caveman mask and this was for the initial study they would trap birds in these caveman masks and then they put these colored bands on them and would let them go And the study was basically, okay, so after this event, when, you know, in a week or however long, if we put those caveman masks back on and we encounter those ringed birds, will they have any response? Will they just ignore us and do their normal crow business? And 
they found that um, indeed there was a very strong response. They definitely remembered them and they treated them like a threat, which makes sense because it was sort of a threatening experience. But what was maybe more interesting was it wasn't just the birds that had those colored bands around their legs, the ones that had actually actively been handled that were responding. But that information that people in cavemen masks were bad was spreading. And it spread both horizontally, which means within the same generation, so within social groups, but it also spread vertically, meaning across generations. And so... You know, the the spread of information from one generation to another is sort of at its most basic level culture. So this was one kind of interesting um, piece of evidence that that these birds might actually possess a certain amount of culture and the ability to pass on information like that. Uh, And then to make sure that it wasn't just, you know, masks that were scary, they they had a Dick Cheney mask as their um, neutral one, which no one read anything into that <laughs> choice. It's just what was available. Um, and and they were able to show that it's not just that they respond strongly to masks. It's that they really learn specific faces. And any type of person, even if they're dramatically different in uh, body type or skin color or um, gender from the original person who wore that mask, anybody else can wear it and it will still evoke the same response because it's really the face that they're paying attention to. So they have uh, enough. They have enough awareness of us, I guess that that facial recognition is is essentially what they're relying on. Not because, like, I can walk recognize somebody from far, far away based on I don't know, probably po- posture and the way that they're walking. If it's somebody that I know, I don't need to see their face necessarily. Um, but it sounds like it sounds like this is suggesting that it really has much more to do. They're looking at the face specifically, um, as far as you can tell. Well, so for that study, yes, and they did they did some other tests where they would have them wear hats or wear like specific clothing, and they found that if people later just wore the hat or just wore that clothing, but it was a different face, it still evoked a a response, but it was much more muted than if they wore the mask. So it's it's clearly the face that they're paying to more, at least for that initial interaction. But I think for folks that feed crows regularly they learn a lot more. Like for me, when I go to my office, I have a pair there that I've fed, you know, over the last couple of years and it could be a rainy day and I have my hood up and I'm looking at the ground and I'm wearing my glasses and, and they'll fly up from behind me. So clearly they know it's me, even though they didn't get a very good look at my face. But I think for that initial experience, you know, the face is one of the most distinctive features about us. And so that's, that's what they pay attention to. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess it would be interesting to know if, uh, like how much difference it makes if, if somebody has a beard versus doesn't have a beard, but otherwise, or, you know, Groucho Marx glasses or something. Right. <laughs> if that's sufficient, like, what's the sort of minimal mass that they would, uh, they would key on. But um, yeah. I don't know, you know, it's just, it's kind of funny to think about all the different ways that, that, uh, you know, you could kind of refine it to just see, like, how much does it take? But it does make sense. I mean, like, as they get to know you, that, mm-hmm. that you, it, it would be of interest to them to kind of uh, f- figure it out in, in a fluid way. And I guess it's not really any different than we do. Like I say, I can recognize somebody I know from yeah. far away, but somebody I don't know, it's like, oh, Though you know. probably can't recognize a crow, even if you know it very that is, well. And that, that is, that is yeah. really interesting, right, <laughs> that they're really good at differentiating us, yeah. and yet we are terrible at, for the most part, at differentiating them. Although I should say, you know, I think because of that study and how well known it is, and because crows separately are so smart, 
a lot of people conflate sort of the their ability to learn faces with the fact that they're so intelligent. But actually, facial recognition in animals is pretty widespread. Mm-hmm. Bees can recognize people, sheep, pigeons. Uh, and so I, I think it's actually just that we're tremendously bad at it. So we kind of are shocked whenever anything else is good at it because we're like, oh, wow, that's so, you're so talented. But but actually, it's just that I think we're really bad at it. <laughs> I see, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it's unexpected yeah. for us some, in some ways, it seems like. But, I mean, they they need to pay attention to stuff. I guess we have the luxury of not really needing to care. Yeah. Um, you know, at this point in our in our stage of, of social cultural development in in the West, at least. I mean, yeah, sometimes there's bears around here, but for the most part, uh, you know, our food is provided for. We're not relying on being sneaky or, or, you know, clever necessarily to to get our own food uh, and to avoid being eaten, whereas crows are, um, I mean, they're out there all the time. I guess it it does seem kind of interesting. They are, there's not that many, I mean, ravens are fairly social, but they still, like, when I'm observing them around here, they'll be in groups sometimes, and there's definitely interacting socially more than a lot of birds, but crows are just together, it seems like, all the time yeah. around here. No, they're, they're um, definitely much more social than ravens, for sure. Yeah, yeah. and so I was, I mean, I, I showed you a little video clip that I did before, and, and you were saying, well, that maybe has something to do with just a social hierarchy, dominance kind of things, and, and I guess... You know, in order to coexist like that, and I don't know what their, and I don't know how much is known really about their social organization, um, but I, I would imagine that they, they must have things that they they got to do to kind of keep the peace, so to speak, so that, that they aren't just like getting upset at each other all the time or, or you know, that there's a clear pecking order, so to speak. I don't, I don't know. I mean, how much is known about the kind of social order and dynamics of, of these crow groups that, that go around? It kind of depends on the level of detail that you want. The answer can vary from a lot to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so um, maybe a good place to start is to understand that um, crows and ravens uh, exist in what we call a fission-fusion society. So that's the same thing as elephants and many primates and dolphins, and it basically means an animal that can be social in a group and then part ways and then come back later again with those same individuals. And the reason that that's significant, and and that's obviously also what we do, and the reason that that's significant is because it's really intellectually difficult to maintain all of those relationships, especially if they're not ones that you are engaging in right now, but then to have to remember all of that information and go through all those social things, it's really demanding. And so generally speaking, animals that live in those kind of fission-fusion societies tend to be... Uh, higher in terms of their cognitive ability and intelligence. Um, And as a result, they're going to display a lot more complex behaviors. You know, they're not, um, I I don't mean to knock insects, they're great, uh, or say that it's uh, less intellectually challenging to study them, but it tends to be a little bit more simple because those are animals that display really what we call a stereotyped response. It's very predictable, right? You give them a stimulus and they respond in a particular way. But for these animals that are really complicated, they're responding often in very context-dependent ways. And that's one of the reasons why we've had such a difficult time really elucidating a lot of their behaviors because they do so much and it can be so context dependent or or individual dependent right of who they're around so teasing out like okay what does this body posture mean 
and this kind, you know, right now, well, it's funny because I saw it in a totally different context also. So what does that mean? Or same thing with their calls. Uh, I think one of the most common questions I get asked about these birds is like, they made this weird sound. What does it mean? Right. And <laughs> uh, we always joke that crow communication is like the black box of crow research. We just we put so much time and energy and just get hardly any output <laughs> because they're they're complicated. We we know a little bit more about raven calls. Um although ravens are less my expertise because I didn't focus on them. Um but we do know a little bit more uh that that knocking call for example, that kind of hollow wood, that's a territorial call. Hmm. Um but they're just, they have incredible repertoires and they're just complicated, complicated animals. Yeah, the, the one crow sound that I always wonder about is, it almost sounds like a cat meow sometimes. Yeah. Like, wow, wow, something uh-huh. like that from the top of a tree or wherever. And actually there was a little bit of that call in the, in the video where they were kind of displaying to each other. But most often when I've heard it, I've just seen, like there's crows around, but there's just one kind of doing it by itself when, I, when I've noticed it. And I was like, well, I don't know what it means. <laughs> I haven't you, figured it out. Yeah, no, there's a whole series of what we call wow calls that are kind of these low, like whoop, whoop. And sometimes they make like meow kind of kitty sounds. Yeah. And they do a lot of rattle calls. Um, we oh, yeah, think like the predator call. Like the yeah, predator yeah, call, yeah. Right. And we, we think that that's a female-specific call, though I, I don't know. I'm a little wishy-washy about that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, they make, I mean, they make at least 40 sounds. Uh, so, and they're just, they're full of surprises. And they're really good at mimicry. Mm. Uh, and that just adds to the complexity. Yeah. Well, so... Um, and when the crows are, are out and about, you know, I see it, it seems like they have kind of patterns. I know that there's, um, you know, they nest. Sometimes it seems like they're nesting in groups and other times maybe small groups. I, I don't know if, you know, how variable that is. But, I'm, you know, just thinking about my own uh, noticing them around town, they, they do seem to be around town here in Sitka, that is. Um, you know, they're frequently on the beaches. I, I rarely see them very far upland. You know, they'll go into open areas and lawns. But like ravens, I see all the way up into the alpine. And I don't actually ever remember seeing crows up there. Um, and then they'll, they'll kind of fly around. But one of the things that I've noticed repeatedly is um, when, especially in the, in the starting in October, really, you can see the sunset below the horizon from the bridge out here. Mm-hmm. And so I'll often go if it's a clear, a clear uh, day, afternoon, really, by, <laughs> by the time that it gets there and to see if there's a green flash or something. But regularly, right around the time of sunset, there's crows all flying off to, mm-hmm. uh, towards. Actually, I think it's the Glencan Island is, is where I think that they roost. And I think that they roost year, there year-round, but I mostly notice it in the... Um, in the winter, in the winter, because in that's when I winter. happen to be out yeah. out looking around. I have seen them fly in that direction at sunset if I happen to be out uh, in the summer as well. But um, is that kind of a, 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 a typical pattern for them that they'll have a group and they'll have a place and they'll kind of go their ways during the day and I'll come back together in the evening sort of thing? Or? Yeah, that's exactly right. So crows, including Northwestern crows, are territorial. <clears throat> so you'll have a territorial male and female and they have sort of their home turf, so to speak. And so the reason that you see a decline in the breeding season in the spring and summer is that they're on nests or they're with chicks. And so they're, they're not going to make the trip all the way out to the roost. But any birds that aren't um, either sexually mature or don't have a mate or, you know, aren't territory holders, basically, they'll still make that nightly commute. And so that phenomenon is called communal roosting. And it's uh, uh, 
not uncommon in birds. There's a number of other species that do it, but it is a minority of birds that engage in communal roosting. And it's it kind of always reminds me of like the British, you know, they're like warring during the day, like very territorial. And then, but then they all like break from it to like have their nice societal <laughs> sort of function right. <laughs> where they sort of all make peace at the end of the day. And, and it's basically in crows, um, it, Primarily seems to serve an anti-predator function. So basically, you know, safety in numbers. But it could also be an opportunity for social interactions or some level of information sharing. We actually, we know very little about the function of crow roosts. We know more about raven roosts. So by contrast, uh, well, maybe this is an important thing to point out. So ravens are more carrion specialists. Uh, Less so out here. But generally speaking, these are birds that are more reliant on these kinds of ephemeral food bonanzas. They're less sort of the dumpster birds than crows are. And so because of that, um, finding food, if we're thinking about uh, their ranges in places like Maine or across Canada, right, where it's going to be more like, man, I need to find that like moose carcass and searching, searching, searching. And where is that? It's a really big deal if they if they find it. But because ravens are so much more aggressively territorial than crows are, it takes a whole gang of birds to overpower a territorial pair. You need at least seven individuals or you're going to get your butt kicked. And so roosts function as a place where these vagrant juveniles can go and advertise that they know where food is to basically recruit helpers to then go to that food and overpower the territorial pair. So they actually do like aerial dances, kind of like bees that are like, I know where food is. But of course, crows just go to McDonald's every day. They don't need to advertise that information. Um, and so that part of the roost is is less clear to us, that function. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, here, of course, ravens are are, they get into the garbage pretty yeah. actually more than crows do if you if you're or the back of trucks or, mm-hmm. or anything I see them they, they seem to be quicker to find food maybe the 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 crows seem to have their like we work the beaches uh, I regularly see them flying up and dropping stuff I don't usually see ravens doing that but they might not need to as much they because they could just eat the craps or whatever but yeah uh, and they're they're bigger but the crows are are relative, uh, you know, and I used to think they were always just picking up actual, um, like the the mussels or something. But then I was taking pictures of them, and I saw that that they're actually picking up rocks with limpets on them, for example, oh, okay. and, and dropping, dropping them, dropping uh, presumably to get the limpet knocked off or the barnacle right. or whatever. But it was it was actual rock, not a not just the not just the clam or something. So uh-huh. I thought that was kind of interesting. But but they're doing that, and then they're also working the lawns a lot. It seems yes, like. um, yeah, they eat a lot more insects and invertebrates than ravens do. And uh, yeah, and just have that that kind of pattern. It seems like you're around. Whereas, and again, I can't recognize them as individuals. Sometimes it seems like it's probably the same birds because there's sort of the same pattern with ravens, for example. Mm-hmm. For a, you know, for a, a season there or, or a couple of seasons, maybe longer. There's like two or four birds that just seem to be in the same area. So I'm guessing they're the same birds because mm-hmm. their behaviors seem to be very parallel. But I like I have yeah I have no idea. It's fun when I see a bird that has kind of unique markings on it right for a while there was a crow i don't think it's in i don't think it's here anymore but somebody had shot it with a dart and you know just one of those long skinny darts and it had that through its head for for years it lived like that it was just through its head it was frequently seen at mcdonald's speaking of which uh, eating eating fries or on the harbors Uh you know as the harbor as the floats move up and down they scrape the the pilings okay and so then there ends up being piles of just uh like barnacle 
barnacle oh. hash stuff there. So I think there's a lot of and, and mussels that just get crushed as right. the so good, I think that they yeah they they get to, they eat on those as well. But it is kind of yeah it's it's interesting. I don't I don't have a sense of um, you know how how far they actually range though. I mean I see the ones where I happen to be, and I tend to assume that they're most of the same. Uh, my understanding is they're not really considered strongly migratory. Maybe they are in some places, but they don't seem to be. I mean, they're here year-round. So, yeah. Um, I, like, is there a sense of how far the the crows are, are going? I mean, the circle I'm seeing them in is a few, you know, a few mile radius maybe, but, I, but I'm not going other places. I don't really know if they're going well south of town or anything like that. There's maybe town has a lot of you know it has a lot more lawn certainly than they're likely to find mm-hmm. elsewhere have nice beach flats in town of course if i go anywhere else where there's beach flats there's crows too so they're they're certainly around but I, I don't know it's like what's known about how far they're they're ranging typically so i know less about that for northwestern crows though my assumption would be because northwestern crows are are very coastally limited mm-hmm. you really don't find them in the interior much they're probably not going to move around that much they don't need to because it's more it's much more temperate but with american crows uh so crow so american crows we refer to as a partial migrant meaning that some individuals can stay in their places year-round so like in seattle we've got a lot of year-round birds um but when you get ones in very northern latitude kind of interior canada for example those birds are going to drop down in the winter because it gets it gets a little too harsh for what they can handle um, and so we'll get an influx in the winter of birds that are not going to stick around for the breeding season, and they'll go back up. And they're, they have very strong what we call site fidelity, meaning that they, they go to the same place year after year to breed. Um, so it kind of depends on the individual and where they live. But around here with these northwestern crows, I imagine that they're here year-round and they're, they're all resident. Well, that brings up a couple questions for me. The, the first one, I guess, uh, um, I noticed – with song sparrows here, there's they're pretty territorial year round here. Yeah, and um, they're again focused on the shoreline or in town where people have shrubs. I don't usually see them elsewhere. I, mean, I have a few times, but but there is there are song sparrows that are resident. Um, we've we've done some color banding uh, of song sparrows here, and we know that at least some of them, which we banded in the fall, were here year through the year and then into the next summer uh, nesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are definitely some that are coming back that are here for the winter, and they step. And it hadn't. It, it took me a while to put it together, but I recognize like there's squabbles and stuff that often the end of like start the kind of the last week of August through kind of equinox, and there's more birds singing. You see like you you think it's territorial squabbles. It's the wrong time of year, and then I realize oh they're actually they're squabbling over winter territory Mm -hmm. like they're setting up for the winter and then they get really quiet you know into the winter and they're still around but but they aren't making much noise and interacting too much but i i'm thinking that there's a interaction that's happening as these birds well two things one the young birds that are hatched here but as well the other birds that are coming back from further north Mm -hmm. that are also wanting to set up wintering territories is there i mean do they just all mix in as crows and you know when these northern ones are, are coming in with the resident ones or or is there some separation that remains throughout the winter no, they're mixing in pretty well, and crows definitely, despite the fact that they're territorial year-round, and I should say, I should qualify that with, uh, it's interesting, depending on where you are in the continuous United States, the their behavior can vary a lot. So our crows in Seattle are aggressively territorial, but crows down south, like in Oklahoma, apparently are not. 
Um, so, you know, I, I have a real bias towards sort of Pacific Northwest when I'm talking about their behavior, which people should just be aware of. But based on the work that's been done in California, looking at the interaction of migratory and non-migratory birds there, because the the year-round residents tend to be more lax about territory stuff in the winter, it, there is an easier sort of mixing of individuals and and food becomes you know, a little bit more uh, communal, right? These birds are just generally behaving in a more communal way at that time of year because uh, they don't need to worry about, you know, losing opportunities for mating or, you know, maintaining that territory and that nesting location, any of that. So they can just be a little more chill. So do you think that has to do with the overall um, habitat, nature of the habitat in general in the area or or climate or, I mean, maybe it's multiple factors, I suppose, or just crow culture in a particular area. Like, I don't know, you know, you were describing earlier that, that crows are sharing information, you know, horizontally and, and across generations. So they have some, some, something that we would call culture, essentially. Uh, and maybe they just, like, maybe that's part of it. It's more of a social thing than any particular reason. Like, if you took the crows from Oklahoma, they'd, you know, would they change their behavior? Uh, or, or would they keep their culture? You know, that's I, I don't maybe there's no way to really know at this point. But I'm curious if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, it is a really interesting question why the crows there would be different. And, you know, it's it's hard to imagine because in Seattle and in California, where some of these other studies have taken place in Davis, you know, it's a really resource rich area. There's plenty of breeding space. There's plenty of food. And so it, it seems strange that that's why they would be more aggressive because there doesn't seem to be as much of that as a limiting factor. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. If it's just kind of local kind of cultural niches and, you know, things develop or, or what. Um, but it's, it is interesting to, to think about, you know, if you transplanted some of these birds, if their behavior would, you know, remain the same or if it would change. Or I think the other really interesting question is, would they have any problems communicating? Hmm. Uh, there's some evidence that there is local dialects. Um, and like we talked about earlier, their, their language is just so complex that it, it's interesting to think, you know, what, would an Oklahoma crow, if it was transplanted to Seattle, would it have any trouble communicating with its peers? And, and we don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah, that would be interesting. It would be interesting. I don't know how you, I guess you could just transplant one. I don't know. I don't know if that passed the institutional review board yeah, or not. But, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it is. So I guess the other thing I kind of wonder then about around this particular question is I know in in humans, I've heard that you can, you know, by the pace of walking and like there's and the way that people talk, you can get a pretty good estimate of the size of the city that they are coming from. Hmm. Um, and and it just like the clocks, internal clocks seem to move faster in cities than they do rural. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if there's a similar sort of difference or if that's been looked at uh, between urban crows and rural crows. Mm-hmm. So maybe in the same general region. But yeah, but uh, I don't know if that's something that's been looked at or not. No, no, not to my knowledge. And then, you know, we could always, of course, ask the question if if uh, crows and ravens here are are on island time mm, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> versus our mainland Seattle crows. If we transplanted them, all the other crows would be like, gosh, you're late everywhere. Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's funny. It would be it would be interesting. And and then so the the crow culture thing and, and we started out, you're talking about the masks and um how long is that knowledge persistent in the population? Is that something that that's? I mean, obviously, 
there's only so much time since it first happened, so it couldn't you wouldn't know if it was longer than that. But like, is that something that persists over multiple generations? And like, like, is there is there a clock on on how long that that sort of awareness lasts? So they have been doing annual tests since that first study to look, and it's been 13 years now. The response rate is just starting to decline. But um, I, I can tell you at least 13 years. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. So thir- so it's just starting to decline. Uh, how many of the original birds are still alive at this point? Not most of them. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a few pairs on campus, but most, the majority of birds that respond are unbanded. They're ones that have learned it purely socially. Uh, interesting. And so it's just kind of a once a year, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Yep, John per- goes out and he wears his mask and... and- and it's they, weird. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Well, I mean, I could imagine that that it it would have, but they haven't done any additional banding with the mask. It's just simply that you know they right. get reminded of it. Exactly. It was just that based on that one single event. Yeah. That's all. That's the only bad experience these birds ever had with that face, and they've just never forgiven it. So you know, <laughs> they're they're the really the masters of holding the grudge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, that is kind of an interesting thing because I know one of the things that, you know, you're going to be giving a talk this evening. Unfortunately, the folks that are listening on the radio won't have had a chance to, well, hopefully some, some folks listening will have, will have heard your talk by the time this airs. But, um, the, one of the things that's on the, on the topic list, there is the crow funerals. And I, I saw once here, I was just walking along the harbor, there was a dead crow on the sidewalk with a little bit of blood. I don't know if I got hit by a car. I don't know what happened to it. It was just dead. And then there were some crows around just kind of cawing and looking at it. And and I watched for, I don't know, five or 10 minutes and they just eventually flew away. Um, and I was telling that to somebody uh, that I know. And he said, you know, one time I saw crows and, and I think it was kind of like a, a gangland murder sort of thing. Like the crows, the crows seemed to really not be happy with a particular crow. And I think they killed it. And then they were all kind of going around it that way. And other, other cases I've heard people it's like, well, a crow got hit by a car and then they moved it off the side of the road. And so I, I was just kind of curious about, about that. Like, w- w- I know that's something that you've, you've looked into a bit. Um, and would be curious to hear a little more about like our current understanding of what these these crow responses to to death of a of another crow is. Yeah. So I, before we get there, let me just address one other thing that's a common question. So, um, and I'm not positive for your northwestern crows here, but in Seattle at least, our crows there will kill each other. Mm-hmm. So that's not a completely unreasonable suggestion. I've heard though that those super chill birds in Oklahoma. Uh, Carolee Caffrey, who's at uh, Oklahoma State, she studies them. She says that would never, ever happen there. So, you know, clearly there's uh, geographic differences. Um, Though it's a myth that they execute one another because of things like being a bad watchman. That's a really common myth that, you know, if they're feeding and one bird's supposed to be the lookout and a cock comes in and it failed to alert that they'll they'll have a trial and they execute it later and that's (laughs) baloney. But... Um, you know, things like boundary, uh, them infringing on boundaries, they'll, they'll kill each other then. But as far as um, just the funeral, so we'll, we'll pretend this has got hit by a car or taken down by an eagle, something like that. The typical response uh, is that the, the first crow that sees the body will alarm call. It'll make that really harsh scolding call. It's the same one they give if they see a predator. And then that results in the recruitment of other birds to the area to form what we call uh, a mob, which is just when a group of crows are together and they're all alarm calling. And then they'll sit in the trees and then sometimes they go down to the ground and and look at the body. Generally, they're in the sky. 
Um, but one of my later experiments, which we'll talk about at the talk, uh, shows that um, they, in very rare number of cases, do something extremely different than that. So in about 30% of cases, uh, in the particularly in the early part of the breeding season, but kind of throughout the summer, they will <clears throat> sometimes go down and actually touch the bodies. Uh, and that that contact can take a variety of forms. In very rare cases, it can even be sexual. They'll try and copulate with these birds, but generally they just kind of are like poking at them. Sometimes they get really aggressive. They'll shred them up into pieces, and, and all the while they're, they're alarm calling. So it's a, it's a very strange kind of dual response where they are simultaneously showing alarm but then also aggression and in some rare cases sex and it can be two of those things or all three of them together just one or the other um so like i said that that's a less representative way that they respond but it's part of the behavior that we just recently understood exists so at this stage i guess you know there's a there's probably multiple stages but but in part there's the well we've documented this we we have a sense of how often it occurs but there's no real ability uh, to attribute any particular meaning to what they're doing it's like well we know they do it but you know we don't i mean not that we'd ever know really what's going on in their mind necessarily but but like there's enough context clues to say oh this seems to be about well you know an alarming for a predator seems like oh we're gonna let everybody know and like there's an obvious explanation for that the the um but the behaviors that you're describing, it's like, well, some of them sounds like are, are not very common in the first place. And, you know, I know how it goes. It's like people say, well, I saw a crow doing this. And it's like, well, OK, maybe you did. But, you know, <laughs> that seems pretty weird. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And, and you know, you get reports of things, not just crows, but things that people see. And you're like, OK, well, maybe because yeah. the world is a weird place. But you also know that people don't always... Like they, they misunderstand. I mean, I've had the experience where I saw something I thought was happening, and then and then turned out that like my understanding of it was was kind of you know like I had my filters or whatever that I wasn't aware of. Uh, so it's it's hard to know, and so like I guess that's why we have our gold standard of of observational evidence and stuff. And these days, that it's it's easier because phones are so ubiquitous with cameras, and people could just right. video what they're seeing. It's like, yes, yeah, see, that's what I saw. Um, but that's kind of the the level of understanding we're at. It's just like crows do these things, but we don't really know why. Is there, or, or is there some sense of hey, there seems to be these sort of things associated when they do these behaviors or or not? So the, the basal behavior of alarm calling and recruiting, so the <clears throat> very first study I did as a graduate student was trying to, to assess, okay, what, what, what's motivating this, right? <clears throat> and uh, there's a variety of potential hypotheses that we could make. They could be engaging in some kind of social behavior where they're like, oh, man, Bob's dead. Well, I guess Barbara's free now or, you know, whatever. They could be really sad. You know, having this ritual of like, oh, no, and they're really sad. Uh, it could be because they're hungry and they're going to eat it. It could be a way that they're like, oh, OK, well, this place is crummy and like or this new predators in the area. And so, you know, some of those questions are, are testable. Some of them like the grief one are not. Um, and so I picked the one that was the most reasonable in terms of designing an experiment, and there had been some credibility given towards from previous studies on scrub jays, and that was this idea of danger learning. And so for my very first study as a graduate student, we um, 
would start feeding the crows in a particular area for a couple of days and that established this baseline of like okay this pair will come down to the food this quickly generally speaking and then after doing that for a few days we would introduce our funeral element we tested a variety of things and i won't talk about most of them but one of them was somebody wearing a mask holding a dead crow kind of like you would hold an hors d'oeuvre platter and then uh, we'd leave them out there for half an hour you know once the birds saw them then they would leave the food would be out there they'd be standing you know about a meter away from the food and we would watch and see if the birds would come down to the food during that day and then we would continue to feed them and so what that allowed us to do is compare uh, the time you know if the time that it normally took them to come down to the food changed in the days following that funeral event and we found that it did they showed a lot more wariness and so that suggests that these events are at least in part a way that they learn about places they they incorporate more spatial information about their environment but what we also did was send out that same mass person kind of like in the original in john study Uh, we would send them back out a week later without the dead crow they would just be hanging out but in that same area and just like John found we saw a very clear uh, predator response to that person so clearly they are using these events as a way to learn about danger and that can mean the places are dangerous or it can mean new predators now the fact that we found that doesn't necessarily uh, preclude you know some of these other possibilities certainly these could be you know complex behaviors that are being complemented by multiple um, reasons, but but at least in part, we have some idea that this is related to danger learning. Yeah, so it makes sense that if there's a threat that is new, or you know uh, that that yeah, you don't want to get complacent. I guess is is kind of what it boils down to. Yeah, exactly. And you know, one thing that we didn't talk about earlier, <clears throat> but in our discussion of sort of crows and how interesting it is that they recognize our faces, and yet we're so bad at reciprocating that. You know, I think one of the the interesting things about people and crows in our relationship, uh, and you can say the same thing about ravens, is, you know, people are very fickle. (laughs) Some people are very friendly, and some people are not, and then some people are just neutral, right? And so if you're an animal that has to live uh, or that chooses to live in really close proximity to us, it's really helpful to know which one is which, right? Because some people are going to are really good at giving you lots of food and you want to know those people but some people are going to shoot you if you come near their bird feeder or you know are harassing their dog or whatever the reason is Um, and so there's a lot of pressure on these animals I think to learn that level of nuance uh, in ways that we don't necessarily have because unless you're really really paying attention I think for us most species tend to generally the individuals within that species tend to behave more or less the same um but but crows and ravens really and and i think anybody who watches crows and ravens wouldn't say that they see a lot of character and i agree with that um but i i still think there's something to be said for the fact that you know for them those differences in character when it comes to us is really a matter of life and death it can be life-giving and it can be life-taking away and we we really rarely have to worry about that with with the animals that we interact with right yeah and i mean i suppose i suppose we are more aware like of the friendly dog in the neighborhood versus the mean dog in the neighborhood um obviously they're they're Many more. They're they're less subtle differences yeah. <laughs> in, in terms of appearance for dogs, so it makes it easier for us. But but I I could imagine that um, I would get to know like if if even if all the dogs looked the same more or less, 
Like I would get to know the ones that were aggressive and the ones that were friendly uh, right. based on where they were and just kind of subtler cues than, than overall, you know, just the, the color of their fur, for example. Yeah. Uh, so that, that makes sense. And I, so, you know, just, uh, you, you brought that up that, that people that pay attention, um, you know, you mentioned the pair that, that still recognizes you. Um, have you gotten to know the crows? And, and, and I know that, that folks who, who have feeders and, and get to know individual birds, like if they're out there just paying attention to them and chickadees, you know, a lot of different birds that they, and I think, I think there are probably are subtle differences in appearance that, that, you know, you, you start to get a sense for if you're paying enough attention over time. Um, but I imagine behavior is also a pretty strong cue. Uh, have you gotten to know birds at, at that, you know, any crows that are sort of like as individuals that, that you recognize over time? I I have, though I had a little bit of a leg up. Um, so there was one particular crow that I, that was one of my data points really, um, go because her bands were green over orange mm. on her right leg. And, uh, color bands definitely help. Yeah. Color bands definitely help. So like <laughs> I said, I had a little leg up, but this, this probably of all of the crows that I've ever interacted with is the one that I, I got really close with. And, um, the reason was she, her territory was, was right near my office and it was, she was one of the first birds that I did that funeral experiment with where we had somebody wear the mask and do all of that. But then after the experiment ended, uh, because she was used to me coming out there regularly and feeding her as, as a part of the actual uh, study, once the study ended, I was still going out there all the time because it's where my bus stop was. And so she'd be like, hey, I remember you. Like, can I wear my peanuts today? And we just kind of kept that relationship going for, for a number of years. And, um, you know, I, I'm quite certain that if her bands had all fallen off, I would still be able to recognize her, like you say, just from her behavior. I mean, she was even incredibly distinctive from her mate. Um, and I, I really adored that bird. And she unfortunately died a few years ago. Uh, she was 16 at the time. So she lived to a ripe old age for a crow. But um, yeah, it's, it, it is amazing the kind of relationship that you can foster with these birds. And, and I really encourage folks you know, and I, I don't mean to knock any other kind of backyard bird. I mean, it's wonderful to have hummingbird feeders and other kinds of bird feeders and see the chickadees and the varied thrushes and, you know, all of the wildlife is amazing. But you will not get the same kind of intimate experience uh, with any other bird, I will argue, than a, than a crow or raven because they have so much personality, because they really watch you, they pay attention to you. There's just this opportunity for a relationship there and this level of of individual knowledge that's really unparalleled. And they just do such interesting things. I mean, they play and they solve problems. And so it's it's a really incredible opportunity to engage with the natural world that I just I just think is is so special and unique that you're you're really missing out if you're not trying to foster one of those relationships. So so with that in mind, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about making friends with them in my yard because they kind of feel like ruffians a little bit. <laughs> you know, they just come through and it's probably their, like one year they came through and they picked all my strawberries that weren't ripe. Like yeah. they were picking, <laughs> they're getting big, but they just pick them and they'd like take a peck and they'll go, oh, that's not ripe. And then they just like. Right. Garden it. destruction <laughs> yeah. is, a, is yeah. a major complaint so, to my inbox. <laughs> uh, and, uh, straw, you know, apples or cherries, you know, on the trees, I see them go after those two ravens, ravens as well. But, um, but, in, and, and then the other thing that people, you know, cause they can go through a, an amazing amount of food, like they'll just descend. So, 
you know, you can get feeders that will exclude crows and, and the larger birds and such. But but it it seems like food is the is is one way to to start developing. You know, maybe the easiest way really yeah. to start. And I know that that out the road at Stargavin, um, you know, the, I've seen people multiple times over the years. You know, they they just have dog food kibble or something yeah. with the ravens, and they'll just set it out as they go. And the ravens know those vehicles; mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they start showing up and will follow along and. Um, and it's uh, so so if people want to do that, you know, maybe they don't want to you know, have to get 40 pounds of sunflower seed every every month yeah. <laughs> to keep the full crows in in uh, in food. But uh, sunflower seeds for soup food. But like sounds like peanuts or, or dog food kibble or. Yeah, those are really the two dog food kibble or unshelled peanuts. I mean, make sure nobody in your proximity has a peanut allergy because they'll stash them everywhere. Mm. <laughs> um, but those are really good foods. And, you know, anywhere you live. Uh, I do tell people, you know, don't don't try and feed a flock. Uh, you don't want to be inviting more crows or ravens to your area than would exist there otherwise, because then you can start to put more pressure than is appropriate on other kinds of wildlife. Um, but if you have a pair that you see re- really regularly, you know, by where you work or by where you live, and when you see them, you toss them like a kibble or a peanut. Uh, that's really all you need to do to start building that relationship. And that way you sort of keep, you know, you're not um, over-supplementing, though, of course, you know, these birds, they're eating, especially like you said here in the city, even the ravens, they're eating a lot of people food. This isn't a health thing. And actually, ooh, while, okay, I'm going to just deviate for a second. There was just a study that came out looking at cholesterol from um, city crows and you know that are getting McDonald's regularly. So just to put people at ease, yes, they do get higher cholesterol from eating at McDonald's every day, but it actually is not bad for them as far as we can tell. And it might actually even be good for them. It improves their what we call their body condition, which is their um, uh, sort of size to mass ratio, which for wildlife is a good thing. So so anyway, so don't worry too much. But yeah, just sort of keep it limited. Just, you know, one or two items when you see them is is all you need to do. And that'll keep everything in a nice balance. So that puts you on their radar and they start to pay attention. And then you have opportunities to to spend time with them, essentially, if you if you choose. Exactly. Um, you, can, you can sit there. So that's interesting. And you mentioned earlier that, that crows play. And I know a lot of animals, mammals and, and you know, birds uh, – well, humans play is a, is a really important function for learning, um, and I was, you know, I've seen um, it was it was an interesting thing. There was a group of of crows. There was a sharp shin hawk. It was a juvenile sharp shin hawk, and so they're about the same size around here. Um, and there was a large flock of crows, not not too far away, but there was a, a small group of I don't know, maybe maybe a dozen, ten, ten, fifteen crows, uh, and this sharp shin hawk, and. I don't know how serious the hawk was, but the crows certainly seemed to be playing. <laughs> like, like they would, the the they would be there and they would caw, and then the and the hawk would swoop down at them, and they just kind of duck out of the way or whatever. They didn't really seem to feel like they were under any threat from this. They certainly weren't mobbing it, uh-huh. and they were just cawing. And then they'd fly up, and they kind of the the hawk would kind of do a, a loop, and the crows would sort of half-heartedly chase it, you know. Yeah. Um. And and the reason I say half-heartedly in part is because they were cawing at it and so forth, but. But if if they'd been serious, I'm sure that the it, the the larger group that was just working a lawn not that far away would have come over and like, okay, we're serious about this. Um, but I don't know if that constitutes play or, or like that sort of action, that interaction. I don't know how common that sort of interaction is. I saw a jay sort of um, 
not doing the same. It was just a single J, and, and, and the hawk in that case, I think, was trying. It wanted to catch it, but it didn't really know how because the J was big enough, and the J would just you know, jaw at it. And then the, then the hawk, I was feeding the J peanuts at the time. I mean, like that's why it was around the neighborhood, uh, uh-huh. specifically, or I, that's not why it was around the neighborhood, but it was staying a little longer and the, and the hawk would fly over and the J would just duck. <laughs> uh-huh. And then the hawk would, you know, not grab it. And, <laughs> and it was like, the J clearly didn't respect the, the danger of this hawk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the hawk was pretty incompetent at that point. I know I've seen Sharpshin hawks take down pigeons. So in the end, it's not the size. I mean, that's not too big of a bird for them to get. But right. that one was just no good at it. Somehow the jay knew. <laughs> like yeah. it was not worried. So I, I don't know. Is that is that sort of thing with the crows like where they're just, they seem to be playing around with the the, the hawk. I, I watched it for a little while. And then eventually the hawk flew off and the crows joined the big, bigger flock. But yeah, I, I think that kind of um, play and boundary pushing with other kinds of animals is not all that uncommon. I mean, we don't – I've never read a paper about it or anyone be able to say definitively, like, yes, this is a totally normal part of their behavior. But I, I've certainly seen it. Um, and I, I think maybe the more familiar example that uh, we could give is the way ravens interact with wolves, for example, the tail pulling and the way that they do that with dogs. Um, and and obviously that uh, originated as a way to, to steal food because um, it distracts the animal, but, but they clearly do it in cases where there's no food around just for fun. Uh, and so I, I do think there is a certain level, and maybe it's, you know, it's social theater. Maybe it's a way they signal to each other how, you know, bold they are, uh, how what skilled acrobats they are if, you know, they're chasing each other around in flight. But yeah, I mean, these are animals with um, a lot of food and a high level of intelligence. And so that combo lends itself to free time <laughs> yeah, and to play. And so, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they're in this big group and they're not worried about some predator. Like, you know, it's it's kind of that like fun little adrenaline game a little bit maybe for them. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. You know, I don't I it, it occurs to me I didn't. I don't know if those were young birds. I can't remember. I, I wrote a little like blog post about it, um, but it's been a while since I read it, so I don't remember if I noted whether they seem to be younger birds or not. But I, like I could imagine, you know, just following the pattern of, of humans, like young males generally tend to be more prone to, to sort of that risky behavior, if you will. But certainly, it's not exclusive to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know, like. Is that something that established pairs will still do or is it more of a young bird kind of thing or is it, um, you know, what is the, is, is there any sense of like the demographic distribution of these kind of uh, sort of what we might consider risky uh, behavior kind of things? Yeah, that's a great question and, and I don't know, I don't know the answer. I would hazard a guess though that, because I have definitely seen mature adult ravens screwing around with yeah. wolves and dogs. And so that makes me think, like, maybe not. But it does make sense that there would be that um, age, you know, that scaled age, uh, just because that relates so much to their health status, to their reproductive status, um, all of that. And so that mo- – and those things might be important in informing when they need to to display these cues 
Um, but but yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's so ugh, yeah. so much we could study about these birds. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm reminded of, of goals in particular. So goals, it's pretty easy to tell when it's a juvenile versus not. Yeah. And mugles in particular, I've seen multiple times young birds flying up. And it wasn't a feather. It was something that dropped faster. But they would fly up and they would drop it. And then they would fly down and catch it uh-huh. and go back before it hit the ground or the yeah, water. Yeah, I've and seen crows do that, do that again and again. So crows do that also. I have, yeah. yeah. I've seen them do that with them um, like uh, – pine cones basically right. in seattle yeah and so in the case of the goals i know that i mean they were immature goals that were doing I, I don't ever remember seeing an adult goal doing that and mm-hmm. i i was like yeah that it, it's it's pretty easy to see how that would be something that would be good to practice because mm-hmm. you know goals are grabbing food from other birds sometimes and you yeah. know they're just in it to get and so the more acrobatic you can fly and and faster you can get down on that stuff you know the better you'll chance you'll have right right so you know i don't know if there's a like at a certain point you're like well i'm as good as i'm going to be or i'm good enough or whatever um i have seen i have not seen it myself i've heard about i've heard at least two different stories of of you know crows uh, not crows ravens harassing eagles bald eagles yeah and and i've seen them harassing them certainly you know they'll go pluck their tail feathers or whatever but two different people have told me that they've seen that happening and and the eagle managed to just roll over uh, kind of on a, in, in flight, mid-flight, and just grab one out of the yeah, air, yeah. And then, um, and then of course the crow got uh, the raven got eaten. So, yeah. Um, that, I mean, that seems like particularly the sort of risky behavior. And maybe there was some territorial stuff going on there. I know uh, there was a, a, a woman, Marge Ward, who um, lived uh, up up hill just a little bit from where McDonald's is now. Although when she moved there. 50 years ago, it wasn't it wasn't McDonald's at the time, but there was a, a routinely nesting pair of ravens uh, uh-huh. in in kind of the neighbor's yard, and um, there it was the flyway was a direct flyway between. It's, it's no longer the dump, but it used to be the landfill. Uh-huh. Uh, now it's 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 closed, and so the eagles would want to go back and forth from the water to the landfill, and that was it took them right over their flight, and and by pretty soon after the nesting season started for the ravens. Um, they were so relentless on chasing those bald eagles out of there that the the bald eagles would have swing way wide of that territory to yeah. go to go. They just didn't want to have anything to do with those ravens. So I know that they can be really effective at deterring bald eagles, but yeah. it, it seems like that is still can be risky for them. For sure, yeah. And I mean, that's kind of the whole idea of mobbing of predator mobbing is that it's um, it's effective, but it is risky. And same thing happens to the crows in the city. The eagles and the red-tailed hawks will every once in a while they'll grab a bird that's harassing it, and so uh, you know it just speaks to the why they really need a big flock to engage in this behavior because uh, in a one-on-one situation like that it just becomes a lot more dangerous um but yeah and and again like we were saying earlier if they are ever doing that for just play reasons uh it's it's a very high risk potentially uh, game (laughs) it's a dangerous game (laughs) yeah it it seems so and i guess uh we we need to wrap up here in just a a couple moments but i before i I did we we finish up i I did want to ask we were talking about feeding them and getting and getting uh to know them but i do know that that uh they can be really frustrating for people who are trying to feed smaller songbirds because Mm -hmm. they can eat so much and they'll just come in and they'll wipe out your feeder um do you have any suggestions for people looking to um deter crows from from doing that or is it just like you have to get some sort of a feeder that excludes them Uh, i mean they'll even like shake the feeders and you know to shake the food out and that kind of thing because they're smart yeah Uh, no it's hard if you have crows who are bold 
naturally like that. It, it is hard to deter, deter them. Generally, they don't like to stick their heads into things. So, you know, any kind of feeder that requires the bird to, like, you know, probe its face into something uh, is going to be a fairly effective deterrent. But... Um, I, I, you have my sympathies. Yeah, <laughs> they can. They can. They can. Uh, they. I, I. don't have too much trouble with them. Uh, uh, pigeons are actually more of an issue uh, in terms of coming and eating all the food than uh-huh. than crows have been at my house, particularly. Um, that, like I said, it, and it seemed like the the crow the ra- the crows that were annoying to me and ravens both. It te- seemed to be late summer uh, birds, and it didn't happen. It, it happened one year. Uh, maybe two years, and it seemed like it was roving young families. So, uh-huh. like there were young birds, yeah, and maybe a couple yeah. of adults, and they were just kind of going through. And but yeah, they did a number on my strawberries one year. I was like, I kept finding these just pulled up strawberries that were, you know, might just have the tiniest bit of red on them. I was like, so one on. thing you can do about strawberries is um, if you paint little rocks like oh, strawberries yeah. and put those in your garden and do it early in the season, they'll be like, ooh, and then they'll be like, mm, this is a rock, and then they're like, when the you know, ones pop, they're like, well, they're probably just more rocks. I wonder if that would work for like cherries and apples as well. Yeah, yeah maybe. Just, uh, Christmas fake. ornaments. Or yeah, something exactly. Just fake them out. I'm sure they'll eventually they'll right, definitely right. figure it out. Well, but. I mean, the the trick is 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 getting just enough window that you can pick them before they do. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, they just have, you know ensure that you're a very fastidious farmer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is it is kind of funny. We do have a number of crab apple trees around town, and and some years they really go for them, and other years they don't seem to as much. But I have friends with like cherry trees that uh, sometimes just get. It takes them a few days to get them, but they they seem to get them. They won't eat the green ones, but the you know as soon as they're ripe, they're they're yeah. on them. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate you coming in. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, like to leave us with? Um, I, I will leave you with two things. One is just to remind folks that um, crows and ravens, you know, we know the crows and ravens by us, and they're ubiquitous and sometimes a little irritating, and there's certainly plenty of them. Um, but there's actually 45 different species of crows and ravens across the globe, and some of them are doing really poorly and, in fact, represent some of the most endangered animals on the planet, like the Hawaiian crow or the Mariana crow. Um, so just appreciating that uh, although our northwestern crows and our American crows and common ravens have, have really excelled in figuring out how to live among us, um, that doesn't represent the entire genus. And, you know, pay it, if you love these birds, you know, pay attention to these other species. And, and there are, you know, conservation opportunities and financial opportunities to help folks that are doing that work. Uh, so, yeah, so be on the lookout for that. And then I guess the last thing is if you want to learn more about these birds, follow me on um, Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or my blog, which is all Corvid Research. So and your your blog is at I'll put links on the on my website when I when I post this but but for people who are listening your website is at corvidresearch.blog dot blog uh just corvidresearch.org or dot blog yeah oh, dot corvidresearch.blog okay. blog. yep right. and then the handles for all of the other social media platforms are all at corvidresearch Okay great well thank you for coming in Thank you so much for having me the conversation you've been listening to is one I originally recorded and aired back in 2019. I was speaking with Kaylee Swift. She is a Corvid researcher. I want to thank her again for taking some time to visit with me, and thank you for sitting here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.